Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis, Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. We are on Chapter 10, which is entitled Transnational Solidarities. Before we begin Chapter 10, though, I would like to ask you to please share a link to this podcast episode on whichever social media platform you frequent the most often. I would also like you to like to remind you that we put out new episodes of Rock for Reading Daily every single day at 8 o'clock a.m. across all our streaming platforms. And we also put out new episodes of The Social Construct of Leslie every Thursday at noon and new episodes of From Rockford by Ari Perez and Leslie Roth, myself, every Tuesday at noon. And so make sure you are following or subscribing to the May 30th Alliance on all these different platforms so that way you can keep up with these different pieces of content that we have coming out. Previously on Rockford Reading Daily, we completed Chapter 9, which was a lot about the Black Freedom Movement, a lot about the the different ways the Black Freedom Movement has been incorporated into other movements around the globe. We also spoke about how the Occupy movement is still something that is relevant now. And at the time of this book, 2000, I think this book came out around 2016. At the time of this book being released, it was a lot closer to the Occupy movement. But, of course, us being outside of the City Hall in Rockford, Illinois, taking part in an occupation by the May 30th Alliance, the fact that she spoke about the the Occupy movement still being relevant is very ironic, very true to what it is that we are experiencing. And so that was a full circle moment there as well. We also spoke about the election, which had taken place then, which is of Mitt Romney and Barack Obama. And I took some time to expound upon the elections that have taken place since then, that being the election of Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton, defeating Hillary Clinton, and then the victory of Joe Biden against Donald Trump subsequently after that. I guess I don't need to say subsequently and after that. Oxymoron there. Okay, let's dive into Chapter 10, Transnational Solidarities. Speech at Bogazachev University, Istanbul, Turkey, January 9th, 2015. Grand Dink remains a potent symbol of the struggle against colonialism, genocide, and racism. Those who assume that it was possible to eradicate his dream of justice, peace, and equality must now know that by striking him down, countless Grand Dinks were created. As people all over the world exclaim, quote, I am Grand Dink, end quote. We know that his struggle for justice and equality lives on. Ongoing efforts to create a popular intellectual environment within which to explore the contemporary impact of the Armenian genocide are central, I think, to global resistance to racism, genocide, and settler colonialism. The spirit of Grand Dink lives on and grows stronger and stronger. I'm very pleased that I'm, excuse me, I'm very pleased that I'm been accorded the opportunity to join a very long list of distinguished speakers who have paid tribute to Grand Dink. I can say I'm a little intimidated by that prospect as well. I know that those of you who have made it a regular practice to attend these lectures have had the opportunity to hear from Arandati 
Roy and Naomi Klein, Noam Chomsky and Luik Waquant. So I hope I live up to your expectations. I might have butchered those names. Sorry about that. Let me also say that I am very pleased that the commemoration of the life and work of Grant Dink has provided me with an occasion for my very first visit to Turkey. It's hard to believe that it has taken so many decades for me to actually visit this country, since I have dreamed of Istanbul since I was a very young age, and especially since I learned about the formative influence of Turkish geographies, politics, and intellectual life, and this very university on a firm, formative influence and close friend, James Baldwin. I can also share with you that as a very young activist, and as I grow older, it seems I grow younger as well in my memories and thoughts. I remember reading and feeling inspired by the words of Nassim Hikmet, as in those days every good communist did. And I can say that when I myself was imprisoned, I was encouraged and emboldened by messages of solidarity and by various descriptions of events organized on my behalf here in Turkey. As I said, I can't believe this is my first trip to Turkey. When I was in graduate school in Frankfurt, my sister made an amazing trip to Turkey, so I have to tell her that I finally caught up with her 50 years later. And since this is my first trip to Turkey, I would like to thank all of those who personally joined the campaign for my freedom in those days, or whose parents were involved, or perhaps whose grandparents were involved in the international movement for my defense. I think far more important than the fact that I was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list, which draws applause these days. It tells you what happens if you live long enough, the transformative power of history. is that vast international campaign that achieved what was imagined to be unachievable. That is to say, against all odds, we won in our confrontation with the most powerful figures in the U.S. at that time. Let's not forget that Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, Richard Nixon was the president of the U.S., and J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI. Often people ask me how I would like to be remembered. My response is that I really am not that concerned about ways in which people might remember me personally. What I do want people to remember is the fact that the movement around the demand for my freedom was victorious. It was a victory against insurmountable odds, even though I was innocent. The assumption was that the power of those forces in the U.S. was so strong that I would either end up in the gas chamber or that I would spend the rest of my life behind bars. Thanks to the movement, I am here with you today. My relationship with Turkey has been shaped by other movements of solidarity. More recently, I attempted to contribute to the solidarity effort supporting those who challenged the F-type prisons here in Turkey, including prisoners who joined death fasts. And I've also been active in efforts to generate solidarity around Abdullah Okalan and other political prisoners, such as Panir Selek. Given that my historical histories, excuse me, given that my historical relationships with this country have been shaped by circumstances of international solidarity, I have entitled my talk, quote, Transnational Solidarities, Resisting Racism, Genocide, and Settler Colonialism, end quote for the purpose of evoking possible futures, potential circuits connecting movements in various parts of the world, and specifically in the U.S., Turkey, and occupied Palestine. The term, quote, genocide, end quote, has usually been reserved for particular conditions defined in accordance with the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which was adopted on December 9, 1948, 
in the aftermath of the fascist scourge during World War II. Some of you are probably familiar with the wording that, of that convention, but let me share it with you. Quote, any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group, end quote. This convention was passed in 1948, but it was not ratified by the U.S. until 1987, almost 40 years later. However, just three years after the passage of the convention, a petition was submitted to the United Nations by the Civil Rights Congress of the U.S. charging genocide with respect to black people in the U.S. This petition was signed by luminaries such as W.E.B. Du Bois, who at that time was under attack by the government, it was submitted to the U.N. in New York by Paul Robeson, and it was submitted in Paris by the civil rights attorney William L. Patterson. Patterson was at that time the head of the Civil Rights Congress. He was a black member of the Communist Party, a prominent attorney who had defended the Scottsboro Nine. His passport was taken away when he returned. This was during the era in which communists and those who were accused of being communists were seriously under attack. In the introduction to this petition, one can read the following words, quote, out of the inhuman black ghettos of American cities, out of the cotton plantations of the South, comes this record of mass slayings on the basis of race, of lives deliberately warped and distorted by the willful creation of conditions making for premature death, poverty, and disease. It is a record that calls aloud for condemnation, for an end to these terrible injustices that constitute a daily and ever-increasing violation of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, end quote. The introduction continues, quote, We maintain, therefore, that the oppressed Negro citizens of the United States, segregated, discriminated against, and long the target of violence, suffer from genocide as the result of the consistent, conscious, unified policies of every branch of government, end quote. Let's take a moment to have a reflection. The name Hrant Dink, I had never heard before. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. I had to Google the, the name and then I also put his name into YouTube and I found videos and read through some of the comments of those videos. And so I, I got a very small introduction to Hrant Dink through Angela Davis, and I've read this book before, as I've noted, and when I read it before, because I was not reading it aloud and people weren't going to be hearing it, when I read the name Hrant Dink, I didn't go Google to see how it, if I, how to pronounce it. And so that's another benefit that I have gotten out of doing these readings is things that I may not have found out how to pronounce or maybe even wouldn't have went the extra mile to get the definition for. I've been more motivated to do through these readings. And one of the things that's great about this book and great about Angela Davis and great about all of these books in, in actuality that we've read as part of this Rafa Reading Daily Curriculum is the other people that they mention, the other names that these authors mention. And it's all, each book I'm presented by at least one or two other 
names that are influential in the course of history who I was ignorant to before and who I find out about. So I'm very thankful for that. And I think that that, again, is a symptom of collectivism, and that is how collectivism works. And and just to put a bow on that thought, I went to Angela Davis individually to read what it was that she was she had to say and what her thoughts were in this book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And because of her collective ideology, she has led me to other individuals as well. And so I think that's, a, again, a, a collectivism in action. Now, the next thing that stands out to me is her speaking about being in Turkey for the first time, being in Istanbul for the first time, and how as a child she thought about going to this place and how her sister had went there when they were when they were younger and again it just puts into perspective the global the global perspective Angela has of the world from being able to have traveled to these different places and have formed connections in these different places and and also to the the these different places where people were galvanized by Angela in the 60s when she was when she was arrested 60s well it might be the 70s actually i think i think i'm the yeah i'm thinking the 70s in the 70s when she was arrested excuse me and yeah reagan wasn't the said okay yeah 70s sorry about that and so for me this is some of my looking up Grant dink and reading about what angela's pointing out here with the in respects to the genocide the armenian genocide is the the not obviously I read this book before, so I did read it once, but it did not stick with me as much as it it has and will now. And that's learning again, learning about the Armenian genocide, but also learning about the experiences of Armenians and how the struggles and the things that they have dealt with are part of the struggles that we're we're dealing with today. And so that's another door that has been opened that I, I will walk through thanks to Angela Davis. And then from there, she goes on to talk about genocide, what is determined to be genocide from the UN Convention. And I think that that definition of genocide is very important because we can use that definition of genocide and charge the United States of America with the genocide of two two peoples, the genocide of the indigenous peoples of, of this land and the genocide of the people from Africa that they brought over and enslaved. And those genocides continue on today. And we could have a, a very long, elongated conversation of, of how they have, the United States of America has purposefully used physical destruction in whole or in part, has purposely imposed measures intended to prevent births within the group in whole or in part, and forcibly transfer children of the group to another group in whole or in part. And so that is something that we have to keep in the presence of our mind when we hear people celebrating and championing the United States of America. This is a country that has taken part in and continues to participate in the genocides of multiple peoples. And that's just in this land. Never mind the things that they have perpetrated outside of it in the 
and their aspirations of imperialism and global capitalism. Okay, let's continue reading. Then they go on to point out that they will submit evidence proving, in accordance with the convention, the killing of members of the group. They point to police killings. This is 1951, killings by gangs, by the Ku Klux Klan, and the other racist groups. They point out that the evidence concerns thousands of people who have been, quote, beaten to death on chain gangs and in the back rooms of sheriff's offices and in the cells of county jails and precinct police stations and on city streets who have been framed and murdered by sham legal forms and by legal bureaucracy. They also point out that a significant number of people were killed allegedly for failing to say, sir, to a white person or to tip their hats or to move aside. I mentioned this historic petition against genocide first because such a charge could have also been launched at the time based on the mass slaughters of Armenians, the death marches, the theft of children, and the attempt to assimilate them into dominant culture. I had the opportunity to read the very moving memoir, My Grandmother, an Armenian-Turkish memoir by Fiti Sitin. I'm certain everyone in this room has read the book. I also learned that as many as two million Turks might have at least one grandparent of Armenian heritage, and that because of prevailing racism, so many people have been prevented from exploring their own family histories. Reading my grandmother, I thought about the work of a French Marxist anthropologist whose name is Claude Mialisot. This imposed silence with respect to ancestry reminded me that his definition of slavery has the concept of social death at its core. He defined the slave as subject to a kind of social death, the slave as a person who was not born, non-nay. Of course, there's grave collective psychic damage that is a consequence of not being acknowledged within the context of one's ancestry. Those of us of African descent in the U.S. of my age are familiar with that sense of not being able to trace our ancestry beyond, as in my case, one grandmother. Deprivation of ancestry affects the present and the future. Of course, my grandmother details the process of ethnic cleansing, the death march, the killings of the gendarmes, the fact that when they were crossing a bridge, the grandmother's own grandmother threw two of her grandchildren in the water and made sure they had drowned before she threw herself into the water. And for me, the scene so resonated with historical descriptions of slave mothers in the U.S. who killed their children in order to spare them the violence of slavery. Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, for which she received the Nobel Prize, is based on one such narrative, the narrative of Margaret, Margaret Garner. I also evoked the genocide petition of 1951 because so many of the conditions outlined in that petition continue to exist in the U.S. today. This analysis helps us to understand the extent to which contemporary racist state violence in the U.S. is deeply rooted in genocidal histories, including, of course, the genocidal colonization of indigenous inhabitants of the Americas. A recent book by historian Craig Wilder addresses the extent to which the Ivy League universities, the universities everyone knows all over the world, you mentioned the name Harvard, and that is recognizable virtually everywhere in the world, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, etc., were founded on and are deeply implicated in the institution of slavery. But, and in my mind, this may be the most important aspect of his research, 
He discovers that he cannot tell the story of slavery in U.S. higher education without also simultaneously telling the story of the genocidal colonization of Native Americans. I think it's important to pay attention to the larger method methodological methodological Okay, let me try that again. I think it's important to pay attention to the larger methodological implications of such an approach. Our histories never unfold in isolation. We cannot truly tell what we consider to be our own histories without knowing the other stories. And often we discover that those other stories are actually our own stories. This is the admi admonition, and this is the admonition, quote, learn your sisters' stories, end quote by black feminist sociologist Jaquie Alexander. This is a dialectical process that requires us to constantly retell our stories, to revise them and retell them and relaunch them. We can thus not pretend that we do not know about the conjectures of race and class and ethnicity and nationality and sexuality and ability. I cannot prescribe how Turkish people, I've learned in the day since I've been here, actually, this is only my second and a half day here, that it might be better to refer to, quote, people who live in Turkey, end quote. I cannot prescribe how you come to grips with the imperial past of this country, but I do know because I have learned this from Hrant Dink, from Fiat Kitin, and others, that it has to be possible to speak freely. It has to be possible to engage in free speech. The ethnic cleansing processes including the so-called population exchanges at the end of the Ottoman Empire that inflicted incalculable forms of violence on so many populations, Greeks and Syrians, and of course, Armenians, have to be acknowledged in the historical record. But popular conversations about these events and about the histories of the Kurdish people in this space have to occur before any real social transformation can be imagined, much less rendered possible. I tell you that in the United States, we are at such a disadvantage because we do not know how to talk about the genocide inflicted on indigenous people. We do not know how to talk about slavery. Otherwise, it would not have been assumed that simply because, simply because of the election of one black man to the presidency, we would leap forward into a post-racial era. We do not acknowledge that we all lived on colonized land. And in the meantime, Native Americans live in impoverished conditions on reservations. They have an extremely high incarceration rate, as a matter of fact, per capita the highest incarceration rate, and they suffer disproportionately from such diseases as alcoholism and diabetes. In the meantime, sports teams still mocking indigenous people with racially derogatory names like the Washington Redskins. We do not know how to talk about slavery, except, perhaps, within the framework of victim and victimizer, one that continues to polarize and implicate. But I can say that, increasingly, young activists are learning how to acknowledge the intersections of these stories, the ways in which these stories are cross-hatched and overlaid. Therefore, when we attempt to develop an analysis of the persistence of racist violence, largely directed at young black men, of which we have been hearing a great deal over this last period, we cannot forget to contextualize this racist violence. Here in Turkey, you are all aware that this past fall and last summer in Ferguson, Missouri, all over the country, in New York, in Washington, in Chicago, on the West Coast, and indeed in other parts of the world, 
People took to the streets collectively, announcing that they absolutely refused to assent to racist state violence. People took to the streets saying, quote, no justice, no peace, no racist police, end quote. And people have been saying that contrary to routine police actions and regardless of the collusion of district attorneys with the police, that black lives do matter. Black lives matter. And we will take to the streets and raise our voices until we can be certain that a change is on the agenda. Social media have been flooded with messages of solidarity from people all over the world in the fall, not only with respect to the failure to indict the police officer who killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, but also as a response to the decision of the grand jury in the case of Eric Garner in New York City. These demonstrations literally all over the world made it very clear that there is vast potential with respect to the forging of transnational solidarities. What this means in one sense is that we may be given the opportunity to emerge from the individualism within which we are ensconced in this which in which within which we are ensconced in this neoliberal era. Excuse me. Neoliberal ideology drives us to focus on individuals, ourselves, individual victims, individual perpetrators. But how is it possible to solve the massive problem of state violence, of racist state violence, by calling upon individual police officers to bear the burden of that history and to assume that prosecuting them by exacting our revenge on them, we would have somehow made progress in eradicating racism? If one imagines these vast expressions of solidarity all over the world as being focused only on the fact that individual police officers were not prosecuted, it makes very little sense. I'm not suggesting that individuals should not be held accountable. Every individual who engages in such a violent act of racism, of terror, should be held accountable. But what I am saying is that we have to embrace projects that address the socio-historical conditions that enables these acts. For some time now, I have been involved in efforts to abolish the death penalty and imprisonment as the main modes of punishment. I should say that it is not simply out of empathy with the victims of capital punishment and the victims of prison, prison punishment, who are overwhelmingly people of color. It is because these modes of punishments don't work. These forms of punishment do not work when you consider that the majority of people who are in prison are there because society has failed them because they've had no access to education or jobs or housing or health care. But let me say that criminalization and imprisonment cannot solve other problems. They do not solve the problem of sexual violence either. Quote, carceral feminism, end quote, which is a term that has begun to circulate recently. Carceral feminisms, that is to say, feminisms that call for the criminalization and incarceration of those who engage in gender violence, do the work of the state. Carceral feminisms do the work of the state as surely as they focus on state violence and repression as the solution to heteropatriarchy and as the solution, more specifically, to sexual assault. But it does not work for those who are directly involved in the repressive work of the state either. As influenced as many police officers may be by the racism that criminalizes communities of color, and this influence is not limited to white police officers, Black police officers and police officers of color are subject to the same way in which racism structurally defines police work. But even as they may be influenced by this racism, it was not their individual idea to do this. 
So simply by focusing on the individual as if the individual were an aberration, we inadvertently engage in the process of reproducing the very violence that we assume we are contesting. Okay, let's have a reflection. So Angela speaks about the book, My Grandmother, which I have not read before and a book that I, I will have to read. And she speaks about the ethnic cleansings that took place and the death marches. And she speaks about a grandmother who threw two of her grandchildren in the water, made sure they drowned before throwing herself into the water. And she talked about how it resonated with the slave mothers in the U.S. who killed their children in order to spare them the violence of slavery. It made me think of, made me think of the stories that are told of women who threw their children overboard on during the Middle Passage and who jumped overboard themselves during the Middle Passage as opposed to subjecting themselves to the enslavement of the enslavement of these Europeans. And it's just such power within those things. It's such power within that 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 tragedy, within that pain, within that grief and desperation. And it's sometimes it's hard to and Angela said this as well. She spoke about if you live long enough, how let me get the exact term she quotes, she said. She called it the transformative power of history and was talking about how now she gets applause when she tells people she was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. But the transformative power of history is that people who seem to be defeated in a present moment, in any present moment, as time passes, the perspective changes, the vantage of the, that moment changes, the vantage point of that moment changes, and there's power given to that defeat that they suffer. There's power given to that pain that they're suffering, that grief that they're suffering. The I think about the children crusades that Angela has spoken about throughout this book and the children being bit by dogs and the water hoses and so many, Malcolm X was one of the black people who spoke adamantly against those things and adamantly against seeing those things and in that moment, that was a very traumatizing, very grievous thing to not only witness, but for it to be happening. But what has happened in time is that those moments have, through the transformative power of history, those moments have become powerful, have become inspirational, and have kept other people going. The, the mo some of the moments where people have been at their lowest have been the reasoning for other people achieving some of their highest moments, being ins that, that inspiration that comes from that. I think more inspiration comes from pain and grief and suffering than comes from success and privilege and excess. So I thought that those were very important things to, to reiterate. And One last thing I want to touch on. And then the last thing I want to touch on is the importance of tying together the genocide of the indigenous people of this land, the the experience of the indigenous people of this of this land, of this country, and the 
beginning of this country, the colonization, the colonialism efforts, and also chattel slavery and the enslavement of African people in this country and how all of those things were done in a furtherance for capitalism and how capitalism became a companion to racism and how they both from the inception of this country as colonies until where we sit today, how they both have been at the helm of the direction that this country has taken. And we cannot separate any of those things from each other. We cannot separate racism, capitalism, enslavement of African people, the genocide of the indigenous people, and the creation of this country from through colonialism. We can't separate those things from each other. All of those stories have to be told when you are talking about the story of the United States of America. And then within there, you have to tell the experiences of all of the different groups of people who are affected by those things we just spoke about. And so we're going to end this episode here. We will be back tomorrow. And tomorrow we will finish reading Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis. Ferguson, Palestine, and the Foundations of a Movement. And then the day after that, episode after that, we will have a recap of Angela Y. Davis's Freedom is a Constant Struggle as a Whole. And then the day after that, we will begin reading a new book, which I am unsure of what it will be. All right, I will holler at you tomorrow at 8.